Welcome to Farmerama. We have a bit of a food sovereignty focus this week. We hear two reports from different ends of the country, both building people's food policies. And we learn about how planting trees within the farm can have huge benefits for us all, helping us to think about our ecosystem in new ways. And Abby will be sharing a tool she initially built for her family's farm to help them generate a more resilient business. It's something farmers can use to generate insight and help inform the ways we are farming. A sustainable future of farming is all about demonstrating positive economic models that build long-term businesses with resilient revenue streams. We've learned one of the best ways to do this is with clever multi-purpose use of land that mimics nature. Agroforestry is a great example of this. Here is UK agroforestry pioneer Stephen Briggs to tell us about his own combined apple arable project and why it makes so much sense. Agroforestry is not forestry or agriculture, it's taking the best components of each and then combining those so that the, the complementary aspects uh, actually increase productivity and increase agroecological uh, uh, processes. You know, in nature, nature doesn't do monoculture. Mm. And if we look around us, there are trees and there are good reason for trees because nature stacks the way it produces things to make best use of sunlight and water and nutrients. So let's take keys from that and, and, try, and, uh, and try and implement that at a farm scale. I spent some time working in Africa and seeing how people are, are farming them all like three-dimensional way for small-scale production. Um, and then as part of a Nuffield farming scholarship, I travelled the planet looking at agroforestry in about 20 different countries. I realised that we were missing a trick. Mm. And there's been a massive division between agriculture and forestry in this country. We farm 250 acres uh, of tenanted land and um, have uh, 125 acres of agroforestry where we've created lines of of apple trees on 24-metre rows growing cereals and field-scale vegetables between the rows of apple trees. The reason for doing that was that... um, we suffer quite badly with our light source from wind erosion and we wanted to create windbreaks, but windbreaks which were productive, mm. um, that earned us an income. Mm-hmm. So that was partly the reason for using the fruit. The second thing is as farmers we harvest sunlight and turn it into carbon, mm-hmm. but we don't do that all of the year. No. Um, and uh, using trees or integrating trees into the system means that uh, well, when many of the field crops have ceased existing or have matured and aren't actually growing, the trees continue to put on leaf and capture sunlight and turn it into carbon and into crop. So we have a longer growing season. So what we've tried to do is create a three-dimensional farming system by integrating apple trees with field-scale crops, um, orientated north-south, so we get a east-west sun rise and fall, so we minimise shading and to, to make best use of sunlight and best use of water and nutrients all year round. Uh, the challenge for most farmers is, or most growers is, they know li- little about trees. So, you know, go and talk to arboriculturalists, uh, 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 try and um, get over your arborphobia <laughs> and, uh, 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 and learn about trees and how they, which are the best ones to integrate into a, 
as a grower or, or as a farmer. Foresters or uh, anyone involved with trees know, or, or organisations like the Woodland Trust mm. are great places to start. They know a great deal about trees and can help you select things uh, uh, to put within an agricultural context. European Federation of Agroforestry was started in 2012 uh, from small beginnings. There are now 27 European countries involved with about 450 members. Um, I would say try and time key into things like agroecology where you know there are there are case studies on agroforestry organic research center has done doing work on agroforestry so there's information there and talk to other agroforesters often if you put a forester and a farmer in a field they'll never make eye contact because the forester's looking up and the farmer's looking down at his feet and it's only the agroforesters that are looking forward right and maybe mixing those perennials and annuals together is helping combat climate change and, and we need to look forward with, with different farming models than maybe we've had in the past. So you heard it here first, get over your arbophobia and get involved. There's been talk of an agroforestry conference in the UK June next year, details to come. We went on a walk with old friend of the show and sometime reporter Ben Raskin of the Soil Association. He's been working with organic farmer Helen Browning to start an agroforestry scheme on her farm. They are in the beginning stages of planting trees, so we wanted to hear what they are thinking now. Here's a little of what was a very windy conversation, so apologies for the sound quality in places. Amelia initially just put in a double row of alders, one coppiced and one to let grow. Hamish thought we should have something a bit more diverse. We're possibly going to review the initial plan on that one. In terms of keeping the grass down, I guess you're not going to put cattle in it. You have to use sheep. Or yeah, something. that's the other big discussion: is is how you do it in such a way that the farm staff don't hate you. So in in the small field, we're probably just going to mow it initially, okay. um, and then at some point have chickens. If we have chickens, it will have to be a proper enterprise that's run commercially and you know and stacks up on its own. Probably there won't be enough chickens to keep the grass down, so we'll probably still need to mow. So I think. Mm. I think we're thinking initially we'll just mow and mulch um, until the trees are big enough to cut. But it's, it's got to be workable for them because otherwise they'll either just not want to come down here uh, or they'll cut corners and we'll lose trees. Over the last two years, I've been developing an app called Sector Mentor, that we use to collect information about our olive trees and vines on my family's farm in Chile. Seeing it work on our farm, our neighbours became interested, and now they're using the app too. And at the start of this year, Davenport Vineyards in the UK contacted us about using it to record information on their 24 acres of vines. A big part of our focus is that anyone on the farm can be able to use it with just a few minutes of training. Will Davenport and Assistant Vineyard Manager Ben spoke to me about how they've been getting on using Sector Mentor in the vineyard. We're recording information that we were recording before, but, but this, the data comes through in a way that it's usable. It's also, I think, quicker to do um, and, and could be developed into much, much more complex things if we wanted to record something more, more detailed. But it's got the facility to do that. And also, we are using it to record general day-to-day vineyard operations like mowing or spraying or something like that. So at the end of the year, we've got a record of everything that's been done on a plot-by-plot basis. 
So we can say this plot of irons has been mowed three times, sprayed five times, was pruned on this date, and, and dates of things like flowering and stuff like that. That's, I mean, you could record anything on it, really. It's just a, a way of keeping records in a format where, where you can access the data easily and, and, and turn it into whatever way you want it. We, start, we counted flowers and things, um, so we know how many flowers there are on each plant, on each vine. And then, obviously, it's, it's always going to be a bit of an estimate that early in the season, but in June, when we're still, July, August, still five months away from harvest, um, we get an early prediction of what sort of yield the vines have got based on how many bunches. Yeah, and I, I feel that uh, with the previous uh, system where we had notepads and we had to go back and enter it into a computer, we uh, meant that because we obviously don't work with computers in our job, we would have to do it in our spare time and then it would mean that you'd put it off and off and it would be really slow to get the data into the computer and therefore you can't compare it to, say, previous years estimate of um, bunch sizes so yeah. you can't get an estimate of crop whereas now as soon as we scan this and sync it with the computer uh, it goes straight to the system where we've already got the recorded data of the average bunch weights we have from previous years and then we can get and a, things like flowering dates things estimate. like flowering dates as well you can say oh we're flowering a week earlier than we did last year or you know lots of things yeah the other useful thing about it is that because it's based on an iphone anyone who's got an iphone can enter data into it so it's not reliant on one person doing all the recording. I think before, when when Philip was here last year, he sort of feels he his job was doing all this stuff. And and certainly when it comes to recording jobs that have been done in the vineyard, you know, one guy might have done the job, but not put it into the system because Philip's got the notepad. Currently, because we haven't got years of data to compare it against, but in the future we'll be able to find out how are we mowing more are we what date was this happening last year so we'll be able to get an estimate of what we're doing wrong what we're doing right and how we can change that as well as being able to see how far ahead or behind we are so maybe get a really early um sort of harvest estimate mm -hmm. uh, to see if we're ahead or behind time if you asked last year if you'd asked me you know how many bunches of grapes we had on each vine i would have had to find the right notepad um, work out what on earth Philip had written in it and um, and then probably add up a list of a whole load of numbers to calculate the average per vine and all that sort of stuff whereas this is all done just from putting a number into a phone. No, I, 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 yeah, I, use, I know I'm pretty competent with a computer but I'm not someone who takes on new technology very quickly. Yeah, and I feel uh, Sextament is a really, really easy system to use. It is, is labelled really clearly and there's not there's not so much options that it means that you can you know what you're looking for and as soon as you found it you, you're there and you've got your data in and whatever you wanted to record and there's no complication with it which is what that makes it really easy to yeah, use. Yeah you could make it really really complicated I think it's quite good that it isn't really really complicated. You don't want lots and lots of rubbish in there you just want the data the raw data really and it's very adaptable you know you could, because you can put in your own um, headings you can actually record anything you want. I want to be part of a future where small to medium scale farms are thriving. I think that will require many resilient small businesses, and that's where I think recording and collecting small amounts of data can have a really positive impact. Our apps are now available to all farmers. We will put links on our the Farmerama Facebook and Twitter, or you can head to our website, tech.vidacycle.com. Please do get in touch if you're interested. 
And also just to say that Will Davenport's wine is amazing, so check it out. It's a great natural wine, something that we'll talk about a little more on a future program. But um, if you're looking for some Christmas wines, yeah, definitely check out their Horsemond and White and Pinot Noir. Mm. Sounds good. So, Nigel, what do you think about, obviously, I'm saying I think it's really important, um, small data for farming. What do you think? I think, yeah, I mean, data, there's so much information available within any sort of farming system. And if you can capture just some of that um, and make use of it in order to improve your business make it more resilient then I think it's a it's a great idea I think probably if used properly it it can it can really help transform your business what what would be your concerns about it though from a farming perspective I suppose um like how easy it is to use Mm -hmm. so how like how can you integrate it into your into your day-to-day practices on the farm Mm -hmm. so making it really simple, you know, using an app on your smartphone, using, yeah, like sensors that are kind of picking, reading information mm-hmm. without almost you, you know, knowing that's going on. I think that's, that's essential. So it's just, mm-hmm. it's sort of automated as much as possible. Yeah. And is, is collecting it with a real focus to find out information, which is going to be useful for your business. That's funny. Cause in a way I have thought from a, different perspective because my idea, one of the things I thought was that automated data collection is very disempowering mm-hmm. because this data is just being built up built up built up and you really don't know what's being collected and what to do with it so kind of one of my ideas about small data is also that if you're actually out there having to collect it yourself right you only collect data that you really need yeah and that's something actually you talked about with Will a lot because I think you know, they were collecting a few things this year that they thought, actually, you know, mm. it's not worth collecting that because we're not actually gaining much from that. Mm-hmm. And because they had to do it manually, they very quickly decided we're not going to do that anymore. Okay, yeah. Uh, so I think there's a balance to be struck because also, you know, I heard a stat the other day that only 0.5% of the data collected is actually used and analyzed mm. in the world. So, um, so is that why when you talk about date, small data, it's different to, to big data. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is something actually Joe was at the GoDown Summit earlier this year. And uh, I think, and he works a lot with uh, data. data that's actually usable and interesting for people. And that's mm. really where the value is to be had. Everyone chats about big data, but like... What does it really mean? Yeah, what is it? And, and really, at the moment, the only people who could possibly benefit from it are like, huge corporations or you know it's it's massive scale insights it's not something that's going to help you on your little uh, in your business on a small scale it's providing so. insight and, and small scale trends in a way yeah and yeah. looking for patterns that are actually true to your little piece of land in the world mm. yeah great exciting very exciting times <laughs> Recent votes in Europe and the US show that many people are angry. Our countries are divided. I always think back to Rebecca Loughton of the Land Workers Alliance closing last year's Oxford Vale Farming Conference. She called on us all to build bridges. That's exactly what we need now. 
we need to go out and speak to our fellow humans. Let's start with everyone in our own community. Not just neighbours, but those on the other side of the town as well. People who are not just like you. Maybe that way we can discover how to create a world that works for all of us. In our painfully divided world, we wonder if food and farming could be a web that will connect us all. We're about to hear from two different groups of people who are actively weaving that web in Scotland and then in England. The food sovereignty movement has a global following, backed by the 200 million smaller scale farmers of La Via Campesina and more. But what is food sovereignty? The World Development Movement defines it as the right of people to define their own food systems. I like that definition. (laughs) Food sovereignty, they say that food sovereignty puts the people who produce, distribute and consume food at the center of the decisions on food systems and policies, rather than the demands of markets and corporations that have come to dominate the global food system. At the end of October, around 500 people from over 40 countries converged in the Romanian city of Cluj-Napoca for the Nalini Europe Forum on Food Sovereignty. Among them were seven Scottish delegates drawn from a range of organisations. On their return, the Scottish delegates shared their experience in a public discussion. Our newest contributor, Katie Revel, went along to find out more. Ten days after their return, the Scottish delegates met in Edinburgh with other producers, researchers, activists and interested people. It was a chance for them to share their experiences at the forum and for the wider community to explore next steps for food sovereignty in Scotland. These are just a few snapshots from that evening. Overall, I guess what I felt most value was talking to yourselves from the Scottish delegation, people from the rest of the UK and and just getting an idea of what's the lay of the land in the UK food sovereignty movement. For me, one of the main themes was how we'd start to build an exchange of knowledge in Scotland that includes the diversity of experience that people have and trying to think, what does peasant-to-peasant learning look like in a culture where we don't really have a great wealth of peasant culture remaining? We were going from this incredibly agribusiness, supermarket-dominated food culture into a forum surrounded by a lot of peasant farmers, particularly in Romania. It was quite an interesting experience, feeling quite on the outskirts of things and wondering what we could contribute. And then we had a bit of a realisation on sort of day two or three. That's what we could offer as a UK delegation, is an example of what happens when you are so far removed from your peasant culture and you have allowed your food system or the powers that be have allowed the food system to become so dominated by large business that you come to the point where you know things need to change but you don't know where to start. Using that as a starting point and being able to give examples to people from other countries as to this is what can happen when you don't stand up for your rights as peasants when you don't recognise what you've got until it's lost kind of changed around my experience and gave me a real way to interact with this massive process that was going on. The inclusion of marginal voices and the representation of, whether by choice or not, the largely urban consumers who may want to be producers but can't be. And very much it seemed like there was this balance between striving to protect what is already there, which I see as being the roots of food sovereignty coming from the global south and a kind of peasant way of life. And then complementary movement for food justice, which is about campaigning for things which people don't have. The delegates and participants then split into smaller groups to talk about specific areas of focus at the forum. One group was discussing food and agriculture policy, and in particular how Brexit might affect it. In Scotland, there's a further complication, and an opportunity, the upcoming Good Food Nation Bill. 
Its ambition is to cut across food, farming, health and other topics. Just like in Europe, we're trying to say this policy has to go wider than support to farming. And if it doesn't include health and the environment and social justice, then we'll end up with a exactly like you say, a farming support system which keeps on supporting the barley farmers on the East Coast who don't even need the money and get 80% of the money and not supporting food for people, which is what food sovereignty is all about. We also, I think, need to have clarity, not just what we want a new agricultural subsidy system to look like, but how we get there as well. I think one of the big issues and one of the big challenges that the NFU face, obviously they are there to defend the status quo, but it's what you get all the time from them when it comes out from policies. We have to defend the status quo because farming is such a delicately balanced financial system at the moment and farmers are in crisis and if we make any changes to it, it will pull the rug out underneath the farming system. What we can take on board from that I think is that there needs to be a way of presenting this as a system of transition which isn't going to instantly bankrupt all the barley farmers on the east coast but at the same time is going to build a system that rewards people for growing stuff for food as opposed to growing stuff for alcohol or growing stuff for fuel. There's supposed to be a consultation on the new bill in 2017. There's a real opportunity to do something different here in Scotland but I think the same discussion about transparency and about broadening engagement are crucial here too. Part of it is just about chapping on doors constantly and asking to speak to the government and asking to speak to decision makers and asking to speak to civil servants and that's what the NFU are incredibly good at and other, you know, that's what large businesses are incredibly good at as well because they have the money and the resources to employ people just to do that. It's always going to be a challenge to what is largely a grassroots movement and the Scottish Food Coalition are going away towards addressing that by coming together as a variety of organisations and using the weight of numbers and of people to have a unified lobbying force. We do need to get better as a movement at creating good workable examples of policy and making sure it gets into the hands of the people that, that need to see it. The second thing that struck me though is the amazing opportunity that we've got over the next few years in Scotland to influence food policy and how incredibly lucky and privileged we are, especially within the wider UK context. And so I think we've almost got a duty on us as civil society and as activists in Scotland to make the most of this upcoming law and this upcoming opportunity that we've got so we can at least kind of set the example to other parts of Europe and to other parts of the UK as to what a comprehensive change-making policy can look like. But how can we make sure the Good Food Nation Bill is inclusive and far-reaching? Pete Ritchie from Nourish explained one idea. We've made a pitch to the people in the civil servant who were charged with thinking about the consultation and only civil servants could say this when we went into the meeting they said we have to lower your expectations so you know that's what we're up against we're up against our expectations being systematically lowered so it's quite important we say no we're, we're raising our expectations we put in a pitch for as a multi-level engagement process but the core of it is kitchen table conversations and we've argued for at least a thousand kitchen table conversations involving at least five thousand people we get to marginalized groups you know we talk to older people in nursing homes we talk to kids in special schools, we talk to people who are in prison, we talk to lots and lots of people and we listen to what they have to say about what sort of food system they're wanting. So that's a, a suggestion for one thing we might do in terms of a way forward. And as people said, this bill is actually a bit like our land reform stuff. It's quite unusual. No other country that we found is doing this cross-cutting legislation. So if we can make it exciting, then it'd be something we can be really proud of.
If you want to find out more info about the Good Food Nation bill mentioned in the piece, there's some on the Nourish website, and also you can find out from the Scottish Government website. The links will be on our ACAS feed and our Facebook page, um, along with a link to a good forum to take the discussion on a bit further. More on food sovereignty up next, this time from an event in London earlier this month. This perspective comes from members of the Landworkers Alliance, the UK arm of Via Campesina, who are putting together a policy that they feel represents the people's perspective. We hear from Dee Butterley, coordinator of the People's Food Policy Working Group, who have been consulting various people to create a a national food policy in England based on agro-ecological principles, drawing inspiration from cultures and communities across the globe. She spoke to Phil for Farm Armour. My name is Dee and I'm an organic vegetable producer. I'm currently coordinating uh, this work around a people's food policy. A couple of years ago, the Landworkers Alliance uh, published a document called Feeding the Future. And one of the key policy proposals was to create a national food policy based on the principles of food sovereignty. And this is kind of in the context that at the moment in England there is no national food policy that actually connects the dots between food, farming, health, labour, trade, environment and community well-being. The whole, this whole idea was kind of came about um, at a food sovereignty gathering that happened last year where the Landworkers Alliance did a, like a whole kind of day workshop around what we want in a national food policy. And a group of us decided to kind of take that forward and actually do like a much kind of wider spread consultation with people that um, just have experience of actually being in the food system. So a real kind of grassroots process. The importance of it being based on food sovereignty as a, as a movement and as a process is really kind of trying to promote that actually food and farming policy making really needs to actually happen and be governed at a grassroots level. We kind of feel that using a food sovereignty framework can actually like allow like clear kind of tangible guidelines as to how, how we would kind of go about making a people's food policy. There, there's other countries that have done this that have, have made these kind of policies. There's in Canada, uh, in Australia, they have people's food policies, and Brazil has like an amazing, quite you know, long process enshrining kind of like the right to food uh, in all their legislative processes. And I guess the, a really important part of the people's food policy is that if we're if we're going to try and work towards having you know a really kind of visionary agricultural policy, I guess the feeling is that we also need to look at. Well, how, how, is, how is that food going to be accessed and how is it going to be distributed and what's the experience of people in rural communities and urban communities and all the different stories you know, within that. And so I guess the idea with the people's food policy is we really kind of want to just, just kind of put forward like a whole, a kind of a whole food systems narrative that really kind of comes from the voices of people who are really kind of affected by the way the food system worked, which is the majority of the population. So the idea is that we'll, we'll kind of actually have this document ready by April, and we've had this quite widespread consultation, and we're going to take, take the draft that we have and go back to people and say, you know, are your stories, are your voices, do you feel you're heard in this? If not, what else is it that you want to see? I think what's important and what, what I think we're all seeing is that, you know, we started this process before Brexit, and sure, we don't have a, a government that's at all in favour of interest in these kind of processes, but what we're hearing, you know, this weekend from Scotland and all these like incredible stories of, you know, land reform acts and community empowerment bills, and and, and Andy Whiteman, um, who was talking about the kind of Scottish experience, was really saying like, you know, we have to, if if we want to see like a radical reform or, or an act in Parliament, he's we just should start writing them, right? 
<laughs> don't just make the demand, actually make, make, make the draft, make the proposals. And it's a really interesting one. And I guess there's a lot of power in building like alliances and coalitions. So if we, you know, if we can get, uh, you know, and a lot of people are participating and contributing already, but if we can get a lot of people on board, then that will give it momentum, like, like ideas that are going on at this weekend. So, so, you know, and there is like a lot of, you know, there's so much stuff going on, like what are we going to do with our food system after Brexit? So I think it'll, it'll contribute to like a really powerful, actually, stream of ideas and action that's, that's you know, gaining momentum at the moment. So, Nigel, I mean, obviously food sovereignty is something we hear a lot about. Um, and what do you think or about these two projects and also, yeah, just in general, how do you relate to food sovereignty? I think it's something a lot of people don't really think about. So I think it's uh, a positive thing that we encourage more communities and people to think about um, where their food comes from and what sort of future of food security and food sovereignty we have in in the UK. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think it's really positive that these issues are being discussed. Yeah, well, it's a very empowering uh, idea, really, food sovereignty, really allowing the people who are involved in food, which actually, funnily enough, is everyone, obviously. Yeah. Um, but just bringing the power back to the people who are actually every day interacting with it and eating it, and rather than markets and corporations, I find that inspiring and exciting. Yeah. And both of these policies, you know, there is it's really important right now to be going out and actually talking to people and seeing what works on the ground because I feel like there's not enough of that going on. Mm. And um, I really hope, and I'm sure they are, both talking to people, not just people like them. Yeah. But all sorts of people. Sure. And that it's representative, is yeah. what you're saying. Yeah. yeah, because, like, you know... It's important to have, uh, they talk a lot about the peasant ideas, but it's also important to have the perspective of people who are eating, who, you know, are maybe much more interested in alternative ways mm -hmm. um, and to really understand why and how so they got to their decisions. Yeah, I mean, it's making it accessible for, for everyone, really. Mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. that's key. And we should all get a say in what type of food system and that, that we have. Mm-hmm. Thanks so much for listening. That's all we've got time for this week. But yeah, thanks for joining us as ever. It's so great to know you're out there listening. And please do send in any ideas, thoughts, comments, whatever. We really love to hear from you. We do. Yep. And can you believe it? The next time we'll be you'll be hearing from us is on Christmas Day. It's getting close. <laughs> <laughs> thanks so much. Thanks, guys. Lots of help on Farmerama this week. Farmerama is produced by me and Abby and presented with Nigel. And the reporting this week was from Nigel, Abby, Katie, and Phil. And this week we've got additional sound design by Eightfold Way, music from Michael, and very much appreciated social media support from Madeleine and Richard. Mm -hmm.